0: Alrighty, we got ourselves another episode of the Steve Laidlaw podcast and we did, we started off the playoff post-mortem series with Jack from JFresh and I think we'll, well I don't know if we can even continue it just based on how the off-season has progressed but we wanted to talk Vegas and the New York Islanders to kind of break down what happened to them after the conference finals and, and some stuff happened so Jack, I'm pleased to have you on to talk about Vegas and the Islanders because, my goodness, has it ever been a wild opening to the free agency period?
1: Yeah, no kidding. I mean, you know, it's it's almost kind of a good thing that we had to put this off for a while because I feel like we could have said some stuff that would have, uh, in retrospect, looked a little silly. So I'm glad that we can uh, actually talk about this properly.
0: Well, I mean, one thing that wouldn't have looked silly is we almost certainly would have highlighted the Islanders cap woes and they still have them they I don't want to say that they gave away Devon Taves they got a reasonable price for him certainly Colorado is uh doing well to have acquired Devon Taves for two second rounders much better than what uh, Edmonton got out of uh giving up two second rounders for 13 games of Andreas Athanasiou but um such is life so the Islanders, they're still sitting with just under $9 million in cap space and they, they still have RFA decisions to make with uh, Ryan Pulock, who's got uh, arbitration set for the next month and their franchise player, Matt Barzell, needs a new contract and he's probably got to be fancying himself somewhere in the Marner range.
1: Well, I, you would think so. I people kind of keep talking about this Lou Lamorello magic as though it's gonna, you know, he's gonna wave his wand and everything's gonna be suddenly okay, and Barzell's gonna be signed for five million for two years, and Pollack is gonna get, you know, three times two or whatever. But I mean, this is a real tough situation that Lamorello has, almost nobody to blame for but himself. So, I, I mean you know, if you think about how Barzal is valued around the league, I think he's been considered a top 10 center. I'm not sure whether I would personally have him in that tier, but that's how people talk about him. And, and he's obviously, you know, you talk about a guy who's like the straw that stirs the drink on offense. He is like the only straw that stirs the drink for the Islanders. So uh, they're going to have to pay him big. I, I would say that they would have to pay him a lot more than 9.5 million minus Ryan Pulak. So I have no idea what they're planning on doing because those contracts are not particularly movable that, uh, that they have at the bottom of their lineup.
0: I do think that in some sense, the complete lack of cash that is out there and the fact that players are going to be losing such a large percentage of their salary this year anyway, almost it, it does play to their favor a little bit where, you wonder if these players would bet on themselves a little bit and take a shorter term and then cash in with something with more UFA years on, uh, on a longer term deal after a couple of years of, of taking a lower salary. So I I do think that there's like a a feasible scenario where that works, but I still don't see Barzal coming in for any less than 7 million. And I'm with you. I don't know that he is, bona fide top 10 centerman, but he's certainly a first line centerman
1: and there's not 30 of those to go around no like like you said I mean even on kind of a one year all right let's just put this push this can down the road I mean I can't imagine Barzell unless Lamorello is really glowering at him across the negotiating table taking anything less than 7.5 or 8 so yeah it's, it's a real tough situation I would imagine that they'd have to find somebody to move out uh, but the thing is first of all they haven't done it yet other than I guess getting like one more problem off the table with no longer having to negotiate with Devon Taves uh, but outside of that I mean nobody's going to be taking that Johnny Boychuk contract except uh, unless the Isles are willing to add a real nice prize on top of that and you look up and down their lineup and you know this isn't Vegas who we'll get into who the players whose salaries they have to move out are top of the lineup players. You know, this isn't Tampa Bay. Who the guys they're moving out were big contributors on a Cup-winning team. These are like true, like bottom of the lineup, like 2008 style, big ugly, bottom six contract. And uh, I, I just don't see why anybody would be chomping at the bit to grab one of those guys and help the Islanders out here.
0: No, absolutely not, and you do wonder how I, I just like there's rumors about oh so someone might buy on Nick Letty and there's rumors that the Islanders are in on Patrick Linea, and there's there's just these rumors out there about the Islanders and I wonder if it's just all pure speculation because knowing how Lou operates if any of this stuff got out then those deals wouldn't be happening and it just seems very uncharacteristic like they had a guy who got suspended for for steroids earlier this year and they just didn't even that didn't even come out until after the season completely it just came out that they filed tampering charges two years ago like it just doesn't seem
1: to be their style I, i always just assume that anything on the islanders is is pure conjecture i think the only thing that's come out plausibly recently was that they signed like Corey Schneider and Austin Zarnik, which isn't exactly a big scoop. So, uh, yeah, I mean, like the things with line a and, and stuff like that. I mean, that all seems kind of fantasy casting. Like, you know, line a would be a great fit with Barzell in terms of he can actually score a goal on like most of Barzell's linemates. mates. Uh, but I mean, at the end of the day, I feel like a lot of people who are doing that kind of stuff really did not realize the depth of the Islanders cap hell. And I think that now that they've been forced to give Devontae away for what all things considered, you know, they could have gotten less for him. Uh, I still think he was undervalued relative to, to the caliber of player that he is. Uh, I think that people are kind of starting to take notice of the fact that the Islanders are really in kind of deep trouble in terms of the flexibility they've given themselves to lock up what could realistically be said at this point to be their best forward and their best defenseman.
0: How big is that Taves loss? Because when I was looking at the trends that we saw in these playoffs, the, the roster building pieces that you absolutely had to have, I was I noticed the trend. Every team had to have those two defensemen that you could have as, as pillars on a pairing that really, really helped drive things and allow you to tilt the ice. And for me, Devon Taves, his underlying numbers from the past couple of seasons don't necessarily – tell the story that he's one of those upper echelon guys but the way that he performed in the playoffs it screamed like he was one of those guys so I'm wondering if they didn't lose what would other on a lot of teams be a top pairing defenseman
1: yeah well it's it's a bit up and down because I mean Taves you know in terms of his isolated results and everything and and even if you kind of just look at you know regular stuff like his expected goals four percentage like he led the islanders in expected goals four percentage in each of the past two seasons uh and his his isolated stats you know the stuff that the real like stat nerds are, are into including myself i guess uh he's he's spectacular like he's by far the islanders most effective defenseman in, in those metrics and, and one of the most effective kind of second pairing defenseman in the league uh in the playoffs and i think that this is something that i personally saw a lot as somebody who was kind of posting about Taves on Twitter very enthusiastically after that trade happened. Uh Isles fans, from what I can tell, really soured on Taves after that Tampa series. Uh I think he and I'm actually I'm in the process of of writing a a big thing on Taves right now uh with uh Jack Hahn, former Marley's assistant coach. Uh and we're kind of looking at it and and in that Tampa series, Taves for whatever reason just kind of fell apart. Uh, he, he was last on the Islanders in, in terms of expected goals for percentage, which is obviously a big dip from him. Uh, and, and from what I can tell from reading angry Isles fans comments on my posts and kind of other stuff, like Isles fans really kind of turned on him after that series, uh, and w- which is interesting to me. But I, I, I really kind of see it as being a, a bit of an anomaly on his part, because otherwise, I mean, he's like truly like one of the great transition defensemen. He's strong in his own zone. Or he's too strong in the offensive zone. He can hold his own in his own end. He's a great passer. I mean, like this is, even if he doesn't necessarily fit the mold of, you know, real top pairing stud defenseman, I mean, you really can't ask for a better top four puck moving defenseman than Devon Tate. So I'm super high on him and, and I think he's perfect for the Avs.
0: Well, it's funny because he doesn't have to be the perfect top four puck moving defenseman because they already have two of those in Colorado. So now he just has to be, a third pairing guy who does those things at a top four level. And Colorado, they, they were already my favorite to win the cup. And now after their moves, I'm just, I'm doubling down on that. I, I think, I think that was an absolute a home run for them. I think a lot of teams oh, yeah. will be kicking themselves for having not gotten in on that. And I wonder like boo-hoo, you went up against the, the, Stanley cup champions and, and the guy had a bad series. I wonder if it wasn't a case of Tampa Bay just decided, okay, we're going to make this guy's life absolutely miserable because he's one of the straws that stirs the drink. So we're going to key in on, on taking away what he does best. And we're going to key in on him, or if it was just, I don't know, attrition or who knows any number of things that it could have been, but
1: yeah, I think think they're going to be
0: far worse for it.
1: The bubble is the bubble people perform poorly in the bubble who perform well otherwise I I feel like it really is kind of a a major recency bias thing because I do remember a year ago Islanders fans talking everyone's heads off about Devontae's in the same way that Penguins fans talk about like John Marino you know he was the like oh you don't know this guy but he's incredible he's like our best defenseman he's doing all this amazing stuff and then kind of as soon as the playoffs wrapped up he was oh you know you you got you stats nerds are talking about Devontae's but you know, Nick Letty's where it's really at and crap like that. But, I mean, just looking at it and and kind of looking at how the Islanders' defense works in more detail, like, Devontae's is like a big loss, not just in terms of he's a good defenseman. He's one of their better defensemen, arguably their most effective defenseman. Uh, But the the bigger thing is that he and Letty were kind of single-handedly running their transition game. Like, they really did not have anybody else who was able to, carry the puck into the offensive zone on their blue line. Uh, Really not too many guys who were comfortable making kind of those breakout passes or joining the rush or anything like that. And so, I mean, the end result of this is an Islanders team that is already pretty conservative in terms of how they play the game from the blue line, like just got even more so. And, you know, there's talk that they're going to bring back Andy Green who from any kind of macro or micro stat perspective was totally ineffective in the playoffs and he's going to be a year and change older, which is not necessarily what you want to see from a guy who's already like 39 or whatever. I I mean, they're, they're putting a lot of hopes on, on this Noah Dobson kid who is good and had pretty nice transition metrics in a limited sample. But I mean, that's a lot of responsibility to hang on Nick Letty. Who's really not that good outside of the transition and Noah Dobson, who's like 20.
0: With Letty and with Green, for that matter, are they going to get a bunch of three month breaks in the middle of the season to get healthy? Because it sure seemed like Letty's game eroded this past season, likely due to injuries and the like. And you just wonder if at his age, he's going to be able to give you that for 82 games. And then if they happen to be in the playoffs, is he going to be fresh
1: enough for that to, to provide what he provided in the bubble? I don't know because skating is kind of the thing that he does and you know I mean I feel like we think of Nick Letty as being older than he is because he kind of declined at a rate that you would normally expect to come from a guy who's like in his 30s but I think Nick Letty is only like 28 or 29 or so like I I think he's actually not super super old the the thing with him is just you know he's um, his skating is so good that he's really really good in transition Uh, but in his own end and in the offensive zone, he's a complete non-entity. Like he makes super ineffective plays or inefficient plays offensively and then defensively he's kind of a mess. So in a way that Devontae's isn't at either end it's either end of the ice. So it's kind of like the Isles had two guys who could move the puck and they just traded the one who could do other stuff, which isn't ideal.
0: Yeah, point taken on Letty, he is only twenty-nine and I assumed he had a longer runway of performing very well. And then it just seemed like he completely fell off this past season. So whenever, whenever a guy really struggles with injuries like that, I wonder if it's not going to become something that, uh, that hampers him down the road, but certainly an excellent bounce back in the playoffs that uh, that would have to excite you, assuming he isn't another one of the pieces that they end up trading away to keep themselves cap compliant.
1: No, apparently they really, really, really like him. So I I would have to imagine that he is kind of like their number one defenseman moving forward. Uh, I I guess depending on what they are able to do with uh, Pulak in terms of like a long-term contract or whatever. But I I think they're going to be running Letty into the ground. I think he's going to be like their only real offensive option on the blue line on a team which already is pretty thin in terms of offensive talent. Uh, and, and again, like uh, Letty's stats have really taken a nosedive in every area of the game, except for transition in the past couple of years. So I would not be too optimistic if I was an Islanders fan in terms of what's to come in terms of generating any offense whatsoever from the back of the ice.
0: I also wanted to touch on Dobson and the reality that they're going to have to rely on them because there's just you have to have those cheap ELCs. In order to stay under the cap and especially with where they're at now I have faith in the player but you look at Devon Taves and it took him till he was what 25 before he actually earned consistent NHL minutes and it seems like they only got two seasons out of him and then they had to get rid of him because of uh, cap considerations so now it's it's on Dobson here and I believe in the player but Will he be ready for next season for them to be able to continue competing? I don't know.
1: Yeah, I like him. Like, I, like, again, in the process of kind of looking through like microstats and, and stuff like that, like he can do a lot of the things that Devontae can do. Uh, a big difference in his case is that he, he plays the uh, right side of the ice. Uh, Devontae plays the left side. Uh, and Devontae's playing the left side meant that he could play with Scott Mayfield, who is a pretty steady uh, uh, defensive defenseman, uh, which I think gave Taves a little bit more leeway to be a little bit more ambitious. Dobson, I mean, I'm assuming he's not going to be playing with Adam Palak, who's kind of designated as uh, Pulak's running mate, which means that he's probably going to be seeing a lot of, like, Thomas Hickey, you know, like like really kind of not guys who are necessarily reliable to cover up for the types of mistakes that a rookie defenseman will make. Or, on the other hand, maybe they play Johnny Boychuk on his offside and that would be a real anchor to tie around the kid's uh, ankle. So I, I think the going might be a little tougher for Dobson, but I like, I I do think that he could be like a real NHL player this coming season based on what he's shown so far. It's just a matter of kind of scaling that up and getting in a position where he can fill the gap left by Devontae.
0: How important is Jean-Gabriel Pajot to this team because for me, the contract that he was signed to was almost immediately regrettable just in the fact that you knew this cap crunch was coming. And yeah, when he signed it, we didn't know that it was coming to this extent. We didn't know that the the pandemic was going to happen and the cap was going to stay flat, but you still knew that these contracts were going to be up and that cap space was going to be limited. And the only way that I saw for them to be able to bring back all three was to not add any other money elsewhere. And then they signed this player. So
1: is Pajot vitally important to them? Yeah. I mean, anytime you pay a third line center, $5 million long-term, you hope that he's going to be uh, important to your success. He looked good in the playoffs. And, and obviously, I mean, he had kind of a, a ridiculously productive regular season, partially because Ottawa very wisely just absolutely juiced his minutes. Like they, they were playing him like first line center, giving him absolutely every opportunity. And he took advantage of it. Like he put up pretty huge points. He, he put up some really nice underlying numbers as well. Kind of an anomaly compared to what he'd done previously it paid off for him and and fortunately for the islanders he was effective in the playoffs but you know i i'm still not huge on the contract they're going to need him to pretty much drive a bottom six that by all accounts isn't going to have a whole lot of offensive punch in it i uh, i mean he's he's important both in the sense that he potentially messes up this whole cap structure but also in that he is going to kind of have to be for the bottom six, what Barzal is for their top six. Like he's going to have to be like the guy who drives the bus. He was last year. He really wasn't the year before that. Wasn't so much the year before that. So I, I the, the, Isles just have to hope that this is going to be a sustainable thing for him.
0: So assuming that they, they're going to be cap compliant, but I, I don't know how, and we, we can come up with all the scenarios. Johnny Boychuk gets sent to Robida Island. I, I, don't, I don't know. None of the buyout scenarios make any sense for them. It saves them almost no money, which just adds on to how horrible some of these contracts that, uh, that were signed un- under Lou and before Lou really yeah. are. And the thing that concerns me, sure, they do what they have to do to navigate this situation. They're going to be staring this down again next year when Adam Pelek and Anthony Bovillier are up as restricted free agents.
1: Yeah, I, they're almost certainly going to lose Sazikas, uh, who even though he plays kind of, I guess he's their fourth line center now that uh, now that Peugeot's in the picture, but like, if he's the fourth line center, he's the best fourth line center in hockey. If he was the third line center, he could arguably be one of the best third line centers in hockey. Like I, I have all the time in the world for Casey Sazikas, and he is going to walk next offseason, uh, assuming that Lou doesn't sign him to like a six times five contract somehow. But I mean, that's a big loss. They're going to have to sign Bevilier. I And and if they're smart, they're going to be signing Bovillier after a year where he played entirely with Matthew Barzal. If they're stupid, he won't be signing a contract after playing that because they will have put Anders Lee with Barzal again. And Barzal will probably max out at 60 points again. But, yeah. I mean, Bovillier is great. I like Bovillier a lot. Pellic is one of the better defensive defensemen in the NHL. Like these are guys that you have to pay and they're just going to be doing this all over again next year. And we're going to be having the exact same conversations and they're going to be trading a good young player to make room for it. And the cycle goes on and on.
0: You mentioned that if they're smart, they'll play Bovillier with Matt Barzell but just contractually speaking it works out in their favor if they don't and maybe his numbers stay down a little bit.
1: Yeah because Barzell I think Barzell's biggest issue uh, because he's one of those guys where the you know the macro level kind of those isolated impact stats aren't necessarily in line with the micro stats or the eye test or things like that and I think this is one case where something that you can kind of point out about it is that he is giving his teammates chances that are better than expected goals can currently capture because they are these kind of brilliant cross-sized passes or they're off the rush or, or there are these pretty open looks and, and things like that, which an expected goal model is going to be able to, to get. But also he plays with guys like Eberle and Anders Lee, who, you know, Anders Lee, that one kind of blow up season with Tavares aside, uh, they haven't been able to capitalize on. So they've been kind of underscoring what you would hope that somebody would do next to Barzal. Uh, Bovillier hasn't had that problem because Bovillier can shoot a freaking puck. Uh, and so if they play the Bovillier barzal eberle unit together for a long length of time, you know, like Barzal could kind of get back to those 80, 85-point heights. Beauvillier could be a 30-goal scorer. And that's great for the Isles, uh, but it's not so great for Lou Lamarello when he has to sit down next year and figure out how the hell he's going to pay everybody again.
0: But I guess ultimately figuring out how to pay good players is one of those good problems to have.
1: It, it's certainly better than trying to figure out how to pay bad players, which is what they've been doing for a couple of years. So I'm sure they'll take the change of scenery.
0: No doubt. Um maybe we'll also take a change of scenery and talk about the NHL's most ruthless franchise,
1: the Vegas Golden Knights. Yeah, no kidding. No, uh, no loyalty in that, uh, in that front office anymore. eh?
0: Not even to their own front office staffers, like George McPhee got punted to the president's booth.
1: Yeah, Gerard Gallant got, uh, got punted because the team couldn't score and then DeVore, had the team not score <laughs> yeah, yeah it's it's, uh, it's really something especially considering kind of the origin of the franchise it's like we are like the tight-knit group of misfits that's going to come together and heroically you know put together a cinderella run and then ever since then it's been okay we are just going to add the best player available and just kind of trade whoever we need to trade to get them out of the way so we can fit them in uh and you know you have to imagine that that kind of takes a toll on uh, on the people in the room for Looking at each other and thinking, am I going to be traded to like the Detroit Red Wings in a couple of weeks so that like my team can sign you know Taylor Hall or Alex Otrangolo or, or whoever's up next year?
0: Yeah, I mean they have been. It's it's not even just the players that they've traded. You think about some of the guys that they let walk after that Cinderella season, and you think about even before that season even began, Vadim Shipachov just ah this isn't working out we'll just end the contract like it just just step after step after step they have cut ties and and done whatever they can to and they've been super creative with what they've done as well it just yeah it feels like the an NFL team or a fantasy hockey team or or something it doesn't seem like what we're used to from NHL franchises
1: yeah I was thinking more of like like you know like the NHL video game like when you're in franchise mode and you draft and develop a team and you're feeling pretty good and then kind of Sidney Crosby becomes available in free agency and so you just trade your best player so that you can make room for him except it's like actual real people who have to like move their families and leave locker rooms and stuff
0: yeah the personal aspect of it seems brutal and I don't know Certainly there's a way that this goes absolutely poorly for them because of that personal aspect, but the teams have done not exactly this, but similar type stuff in the past. I think about the St. Louis blues and when they kind of transitioned from the Backus, Oshi Oshie Shattenkirk, core of the team and they still had some of the younger guys who who eventually were part of their their stanley cup team but they they transitioned away from those players and moved on and then brought in new pieces shen o'reilly and eventually they did get over the hump and you had all these guys left over from that previous run that i mean there was rumors about petrangelo being traded before they won the cup And I'm sure lots of the players thought, "Mm, you know, who who's next, if this doesn't work. And so I don't know that it necessarily, ultimately you're dealing with professionals and ultimately you're dealing with competitive people. So when push comes to shove, they're going to try to win, but I wonder if it doesn't cost more people their job before they get to that winning.
1: Yeah, no, I, I'd agree with that. Uh, I, I think, Sometimes the kind of analytical minded people can get the reputation that they're these like sociopaths who just think of players as like wins above replacement and just think the team should ruthlessly move them around with no regard for any kind of human decency or dignity or anything like that. But I mean, you know, in a case like this, I think you can directly see situations where obviously there's some unhappiness behind the scenes. And and this isn't even really necessarily a case where the guys they're moving out were problems like you know like they're moving out guy I mean Nate Schmidt was like their top pairing right-handed defenseman uh and Paul Stastny was like their second line center and like these are top of the lineup guys who really didn't kind of nothing to warrant being traded except that the Knights wanted to sign Alex Petrangelo to a seven-year contract which I can see as being a little bit less palatable than you know in the in the St. Louis case it was more of you know, look, this core is clearly not getting the job done. Like, we've we've hit a ceiling. We need to turn the page. We need to turn the reins over to Tarasenko and, and go from here. All right. And in this case, it, it really kind of seems more like a opportunistic, like we have to get the best free agent every year. Like, we want stars on this team. Like, that's what this team needs is, is star power. So we're going to go get Pacioretty and Stone and Petrangelo and whoever's available next year or the year after that, which I feel like could probably rankle people a little bit more than what St. Louis did, which is kind of more like, okay, we have a plan here. We're just going to transition. We've given this core five years or so to, to win a cup, and they haven't done that. So we're going to move on. Whereas the Lightning or the, the Knights, sorry, I mean, they've made the conference final two out of three years. Uh, they lost in a game seven and, and to the eventual conference final runner up the year between that. And the need that they addressed was really kind of more of an upgrade than it was fixing something that really needed to be fixed because I'm sure we're going to get into. So it's a little different for me.
0: Well, and Petrangelo wasn't the only guy that they were in on. Supposedly they made offers to Taylor Hall, but they had to move more money out, which is how you ended up with so many other players being in rumors than just the ones who were traded and and flurried being shopped around as aggressively as he was um yeah. did they actually make their team better because for me I certainly see this as an upgrade but I don't think that it necessarily addressed what they absolutely needed to address because like I said you've got this this requirement if you want to contend or at least in these playoffs you had to have two defensemen on two pairings that could drive a pairing for you and tilt the ice for 50 minutes. And I thought they had that. So did they need to address that? Yeah,
1: I, I mean, if, if you asked me to list the issues that the Vegas Golden Knights had, uh, their right defensive first pairing would not have been the thing that really jumped to my mind. Uh, apparently Vegas people weren't, again, just like Devon weren't super psyched with Nate Schmidt's play. I didn't see anything particularly wrong with it, but, but they apparently weren't too happy about it. I think that a lot of that might just be kind of PDO bias with, with how Vegas' results were with kind of everybody. Um, but, I, I mean, you know, I, again, if you ask me what Vegas's problem was, it was putting the puck in the stupid net, which they haven't been able to do for the past two years and two playoffs. And here we are. We've gone through three agency. They haven't done anything to address that except move out Paul Stastny who was kind of in that category of players who were underperforming their expected goals, but he was only doing it with Shea Theodore on the ice, which gets into kind of a thing that I've looked into a little bit in terms of Vegas's inability to really generate offense off the cycle. So yeah, I mean, again, like, like you add a Norris trophy caliber defenseman and he should have been a nominee this year. I mean, that's a win no matter what. And I I think it's, it's, very improbable that Nate Schmidt is going to be a better defenseman than Alex Petrangelo, at least in any of the next three years and, and quite possibly past that. So, I mean, it's an upgrade. Like the Vegas Golden Knights are a better team now on their defense, especially than they were before. But I don't know if it's in such a way that is really going to kind of turn the dial and, and fix the issues that were present in the playoffs and, and before that.
0: Well, and how funny would it have been if they found a way to get Taylor Hall as well and added another guy who doesn't shoot a high percentage?
1: Yeah, I I mean, at the very least, Hall can pass the puck super well in the cycle. So maybe that would just give people some more open looks. But I was kind of thinking about that. It's like when they were talking about Hall to, to Montreal as well, because Montreal is kind of the other team, along with Vegas, that has the super high Corsi and expected goals and all those kind of underlying numbers, but can't actually score at a rate that you would expect them to Uh, And they were kind of in the mix for Taylor Hall and of course they end up signing Tyler Toffoli who is kind of the ultimate Like underperforming the expected goals guy Uh, And you know, it was kind of funny that that happened on the same day that Vegas signed Petrangelo And so you had these two teams that are in a very similar situation who both indisputably made their teams better but not in a way that addressed what their biggest problems were. I do wonder
0: with how much they own the puck, but how much they struggle to score. Is this a case where it just, it's become so hard to score in when, when you're owning the puck in the offensive end versus how much easier it is to score on the rush. And it almost, implores you to allow the team to to get a little bit more going the other way so that you can counterattack.
1: Yeah I do kind of I, because I mean that was my conclusion when I looked into the Theodore thing was that what it really seemed to me was that Theodore was not generating that much off the rush or when he was he was kind of inserting himself in it in a way that kind of actually killed the rush a little bit because he wasn't just kind of letting the forwards do their job uh, whereas I mean Schmidt hasn't had any issues in terms of on ice finishing, just like almost any Vegas defenseman uh, other than Theodore hasn't had any on ice finishing issues. And Schmidt is really kind of one of those like really heavy, like makes the breakout pass, like activates the rush kind of guys. Uh, And then Petrangelo, I don't have as much of a read on him in terms of his distribution of kind of generating, you know, passes off the rush or in zone possession or or what have you. It would be interesting to see, but. Yeah, I, I mean, Vegas' biggest issue in terms of finishing, I think, was definitely their reliance on kind of possession style, like positional offense, uh, which isn't the problem in and of itself. But when you don't have guys who can kind of finish those rebound chances and, and stuff like that, you know, that's going to be an issue. And I kind of what – I, what I figured was that the, the rush opportunities for them were kind of drying up in the playoffs or they weren't going in which kind of left them in a position where they were forced to really rely on that overwhelming, you know, coursey driving, quantity-based offensive zone attack, which they just didn't have the guys to score those chances on. And, I mean, they still don't have the guys to score those ch- on those chances. Uh, I was kind of thinking earlier today that it would be kind of funny if they have, like, a massive, like, PDO bump this season, but it, like, just gets them to even. Like, they like it looks like they finally regressed to the mean, but it's actually, like, an insane shooting percentage bump. But (laughs) they're just so bad at shooting that it just makes them look average.
0: Well, and it's weird because in that first season, it seemed like they were on the opposite end of that spectrum. Like, my goodness, Carlson scored 40 goals for them, and I don't think he's ever doing that again.
1: Yeah, it was kind of a a combination of kind of luck and career seasons and stuff like that where – yeah, I mean, you were never going to expect that, and I think th- that's one of the reasons it kind of makes me laugh a bit. I and mean, I think the shine's wearing off, but I mean, Vegas for most of the season like was kind of like the analytical darling team. Where like if you were like a hockey Twitter person or like an analytically minded person, like Vegas was a team that you really liked because you know they had Mark Stone, they had Shea Theodore, they were like leading the league in expected goals in Corsi, so you could be like, oh yeah, they don't worry they're going to regress to the mean, like they're underrated and all this stuff. And I feel like after those playoffs and after, I think people have kind of taken a look at their results in the past couple of years, the, the shine has kind of worn off them a little bit in terms of, you know, how much people think that they're kind of like the best team in the league, like, like they did a couple months ago. And I mean, you know, like I said, like they added a player who's going to make them better, but not necessarily better in the way that you would, kind of denote as being like the thing that they really needed so it'll be interesting I mean they should be one of the best teams in the league it's just a matter of whether they can find anybody who can put in those rebounds
0: yeah there's still an absolute nightmare for me I definitely fell into the trap and I don't necessarily know that it was wrong to think that they were a cup contender because they oh, yeah. do own so much of the puck and I thought that at least part of their issue was with goaltending and I thought laner perfectly solved that for them, although it does uh, cause some ripples in the locker room.
1: Yeah. I, I At the end of the day, you know, this isn't a situation where, you know, the things that Vegas does badly lead to a 92 PDO or whatever. Like They are a better team from a shooting perspective than they were in the playoffs and I think kind of Ta- you know, tabulating everything that happened in the playoffs is perfectly reflective of Vegas' skill and completely negating any kind of like strong goaltending performance or luck or anything like that is an overstatement. It's just at the same time, there is an issue with this team. It's not an issue that was addressed. It's not an issue that they really have the space to address or admittedly, you know, like the the spots in the lineup. Like their wingers are kind of set right now. Like they can't really acquire a top – sixth winger without moving somebody out they can't bring in like a top nine right wing because they're kind of covered in that spot so really I think that they're just going to have to work it out internally with the guys that they have and the guys that they have are good at hockey and they're going to be one of the best teams in the NHL next year so they have plenty of time to sort out the issues that they have
0: you know Chris do you think some some of the NHL teams that that traded for Stastny and Schmidt let the Golden Knights off the hook here
1: it's tough because, I mean, like, like I said earlier, you're in a good spot when your cap dumps are good at hockey. Uh, and they, uh, Tampa's showing that like even that isn't necessarily going to be good enough. I feel like Tampa kind of has pissed people off by being like the cup champion and nobody is really helping to bail them out or anything like that, like the Leafs last year. But, I mean, in a vacuum, like I like both of the trades that were made to Vegas for Paul Stastny and Nate Schmidt. Like I, I still think Paul Stastny can play. I don't think that his points, or his kind of, you know, his his war, are, are reflective of the caliber of player that he is. I think that a lot of it is just some bad finishing luck uh, and and some bad, you know, the Theodore effect. Uh, I think that he's going to have a, a really strong season with the uh, with the Jets, and and I think it kind of resets what the Jets are able to do in terms of. You know, they don't have to move, like, hurry up and move out line A or Ehlers. Like, they, they have a center who they know can play with them, who has like a complementary skill set, and they can just kind of try to, you know, put their feet on the ground and, and figure that out again. Uh, from Vancouver's perspective, I mean, they just needed legs. Like, they needed a guy. And even if Schmidt doesn't necessarily kind of fit the mold of exactly what they needed, which was a more defensive minded player, like, they needed NHL players who could play big minutes. Uh, on on the right side or the left side and he can do that so like I as much as you kind of want to say like come on guys like you, you you can't be helping out Vegas here you have to at least be getting some assets in return you know some sweeteners I can totally understand why Winnipeg and Vancouver felt the need to like totally jump on these players and not let you know some like New Jersey or something like that take them and require a sweetener back like they they wanted to upbid them because they actually wanted those players because they're good
0: yeah I thought the game theory of it all was supremely fascinating to me it seemed like very similar to the prisoner's dilemma where if but played out over like such a larger scale and and stranger stakes and stuff like that where yeah sure the 30 other NHL teams could all say no we're not taking dumps from Vegas but all it takes is one team acting in their own self-interest and suddenly Vegas gets let off the hook and with Fleury no one was willing to do that without getting some crazy sweetener whereas for Stastny and Schmidt it just it filled these needs so much better Schmidt particularly I thought for Vancouver, they were on the cusp of just completely losing free agency. And when I did the post-mortem for, for them, I really felt like with that market and and with the team that they had, they, the, the honeymoon period was over. Now there was expectations. And so they absolutely have to bring back a team that is playoff worthy again, or things could really snowball for them. And I think that Schmidt, like I've talked about with the two, two uh, defensive pairing driving guys, they now have that. And I don't necessarily know that they had that before.
1: Yeah. I mean, Vancouver has a lot more to do, but they really needed a, a guy like Schmidt. And, you know, I don't think necessarily Schmidt's contract is super inviting. Like they really locked him up at, at a decent ticket for, for quite a while. But at the same time, at least they know Schmidt can play Like they were looking at a defensive situation where I think going into it, their defense was like, you know, because they let Stetcher go, they let Tanev go, and this was already a team that was pretty thin on the right side of the ice. You know, so they were looking at uh, having Tyler Myers as their number one defenseman or their number one right-handed defenseman and having, you know, Brogan Rafferty, who's like a 26-year-old rookie. And then I can't even remember who I had Pencilton as their – as their third right defenseman before this move was made. So I think this makes a lot of things a lot more palatable for the Canucks and especially kind of for their management, who's taken quite a few maybe not deserved L's in, in the eyes of the fan base. You know, losing to Foley wasn't too great. Letting Markstrom and Tanev and them go was, was a smart move in my mind. Uh, you know, it, it gives them a win. It gives them a guy who they can – put in tough situations you know I think that it would be smart for them to put him with Edler off the start just because Schmidt kind of plays more of that offense forward style of game but you know they are going to have to figure out what they're going to do with Hughes but yeah I I, I hold no grudges against the Canucks for deciding that's what they needed to do.
0: Yeah for sure and it seems like the Canucks are they're really really trying to avoid the New York Islanders situation where they can't afford to pay their best young players because they've surrounded with all this talent that they overpaid and is aging out. And they've already done a little bit of that, but they're really trying to avoid doing any more of it. So you let these guys walk earlier than you would have liked to have. And now they're left grasping at straws.
1: Yeah. They're, they're kind of like the aisles, with a better young defenseman and with no real success to hang their hat on yet so kind of a a win-loss there but very similar in terms of where they decided to allocate their cap and and what kind of challenges are ahead for them moving forward
0: before I let you go here I'm wondering is there any team that has absolutely knocked it out of the park for you
1: oh man uh, well, I, I guess Colorado is cheating, right? We can't uh, talk about them as being, the, uh, as being the team?
0: No, we can talk about them being the team. I mean, we, we, we talked up Taves, but did, did you like the Saad move for them?
1: Yeah, I, I would have liked a Hall move better. But in a vacuum, you know, SOD, we talked about Defoli. Sod's another one of those guys who's really underperformed his expected goals in the past five years or so. You know, I mean, if if you want to send somebody to a team that has guys who can actually, like, score at insanely above-expected rates, it would be the Colorado Avalanche. So I think if they slot him as a puck retriever on a line that has, you know, kadri and, and, you know, maybe Nichushkin or Donskoy or Burakovsky, he's going to see pucks go in at a much higher rate than he's used to. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Colorado is a very well-run franchise, uh, and which I'm sure – reason for that is that their hockey analytics director follows me on Twitter so I'm sure that he's just kind of writing down everything that I put out and sending it up to Joe Sackick and he makes the phone call but either way I uh I I really like what they outline
0: or at least at the very least he's compiling it all and he's 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 providing some kind of a report right um with Hall in Colorado I do wonder I think he, I think he signed in Buffalo just because it was the most money. I I really, I think he's just, he's looking to rebuild his market. He wanted to, before free agency, he indicated that he wanted what Petrangelo got, which was full term, full money. I'm not taking a discount. And apparently there was absolutely no market there for him. So he just took the most money.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure the whole Eichel thing and Kruger thing, I'm sure those all kind of, Band it together. I really wanted to see him in Carolina and I'm kind of bummed out that that apparently just never was a possibility. But, uh, I, you know, it'll be fun to watch in Buffalo. I'm sure it'll be Skinner all over again where he puts up nice point totals. Maybe this time they decide not to re-sign the player for $9 million long term, or, or maybe they do, which would also be kind of funny. But I mean, I, I wrote quite a bit about Taylor Hall and what happened to him this season. And I think based on, he kind of got a bum rap from a lot of people who are kind of covering things analytically uh, in the past, you know, a couple weeks or so as people were talking about him. But I think to really get a sense of what happened to Hall this year, you need to separate out the New Jersey start of the year where he was like like he was like below replacement level bad and Arizona where he was back to normal. Like he was on a shitty power play. So he didn't... Uh, get any power play points or anything like that but other than that I mean he pretty much played the way you expect Taylor Hall to play his results were pretty good he looks pretty good and uh, I don't think there's any reason to believe that this is some like grand decline that we're looking at for him I think he's you know his defensive game probably isn't what it was he might be a little bit more hesitant with the injury concerns but uh uh, he's he's still one of the best left wings in the NHL and he has a skill set that I think despite kind of the myth of the he has to be carrying the puck thing. I think he's going to be pretty compatible with Jack Heichel and and that'll be fun to watch.
0: All right, everyone. That was our episode. You know, the last time that we had Jack on the pod, we did an absolute marathon multi-episode podcast that we never wanted to repeat. So this time around, we left a little bit of meat on the bone and hopefully that leaves you wanting more. If you want more from Jack, Give him a follow on Twitter at JFreshHockey, and make sure you check out his sub stack, JFreshHockey. He's been tweeting out these fantastic player cards through all this free agency, and he's been offering up his opinions. He's he's giving you the fancy stats breakdowns and and telling you which signing's good, which one addresses a need, which one doesn't. It's been Mildly depressing as an Oilers fan because not all of their signings have been the greatest, but I kind of knew that already. It is what it is. So make sure you're following him there. And if you like this show, please like, subscribe, review wherever you get your podcasts.